Welcome to Pale in the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond. Happy Thanksgiving to all our American listeners. A rare off night in the NBA for the holidays. And joining me to fill that time is my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. Yes, happy Thanksgiving to our American listeners. Uh, for our Canadian listeners, I just want to mention off the top, you're probably all swept up in World Cup fever right now. So I do want to let you know, Canucks in Qatar. It's a soccer podcast from the score that tracks and covers Canada's men's national team throughout their first World Cup appearance in 36 years. There have only been six episodes so far, and they are much more concise than uh, the podcast you usually listen to by yours truly and Wolf on. So you definitely have time to listen to all of them before Canada's next match against Croatia on Sunday. Within the first few episodes alone, They've got interviews with current World Cup squad members, Jonathan Osorio and Alistair Johnston, both of whom played versus Belgium in the opener, by the way. So once you're done with this episode of Pound the Rock, do me a favor and go subscribe to Canucks in Qatar, wherever you get your podcasts. I've been listening uh, to the pod, not just because I work for the score um, or, as, or, you know, I'm a soccer fanatic, but because it's actually great content um, and very insightful too. So Definitely recommend that for all of our list Canadian listeners or anyone interested in the Canadian men's national team. Uh, and if you're interested in NBA ball, hopefully we've got approximately 45 minutes today to entertain you and get you through this gamesless day, unless you're listening on Friday, in which case there will be games. Yeah, I mean, I think that pod should pair nicely with our episode today because we are also going to be talking about a plucky underdog upstart type of team that is honestly better than I think anybody could have reasonably expected it to be. Yeah. And I that, thought you were going to say a plucky Canadian team. Cause there's what, like four Canadians on the team. Three. Or they four are teams. the most Canadian team yeah. in the NBA right yeah. now uh, on top. By the way, we're talking about the Indiana Pacers. I guess we should, <laughs> we should have mentioned that off the top, but uh, my, my once beloved Indiana Pacers almost making me regret renouncing my fandom last year because not only are they the most Canadian team in the NBA right now, they are also super fun. And I'm looking forward to getting into what has made them so fun and what has made them so much better than I think you or I, or almost anybody else expected them to be so far this season. Before we do get into that, it does bear mentioning that it feels like half of the NBA is injured right now. It's insane. And I know this is kind of, it feels like we do this every year and we almost forget how big a part of the game injuries are. And there always comes a point in the season where it just feels like they are kneecapping, you know, half the league's teams. And I, I feel like usually it doesn't happen this early in the season, but maybe I'm just misremembering. Right now, it just feels like, especially like the the profile of the right. players that are out, where you know Jimmy Butler has been out; he's dealing with a, a knee issue in Philly. Joel Embiid, James Harden, and Tyrese Maxey are all out with various kinds of foot injuries. Seems like Embiid is of the less serious variety, and he's not going to be out for as long. But their two lead guards are going to be out for you know at least the next two to three weeks. Dame Lillard's been out. Kawhi is barely played, and even after coming back, he now has an ankle injury. Yeah, and Ty, George. Ty, Ty Lue said Kawhi and Paul George, who you were just about to mention. Paul mm -hmm. George is out with a hamstring injury. Kawhi's now yep. with the ankle injury after finally, you know, having come back from the knee injury. He was already only on a 25-minute limit. But Ty Lue said Wednesday that there's not a timetable for either of those guys' returns. Yeah, not... I don't know. We, we can talk about the Clippers, I guess, on a different episode, but like what a weird start to the season for them because they are, what are they now, 10 and 8? They're like in the top six, I think, in the West, despite. Yeah, but it just, I, I have they had any particularly impressive wins? Like it no. just, it's Im impressive overall, I guess, that they are 10 and 8, despite the fact that Kawhi has missed a ton of time and now PG is missing time as well. And like their defense has consistently been in the top five, like basically from the beginning of the season. So that's all good, but it's impossible to get a feel for that team. And obviously if Kawhi isn't going to get back to anything close to a hundred percent, which he hasn't looked close, even in the, the brief stints that he has played so far, then I don't know that any of this really matters for them. And this season's ultimately going to wind up being a huge disappointment. Yeah. 
LeBron's been out with a groin injury. It seems like maybe he's going to be back on Friday. Um, Sounds like it, yep. So that'll be nice to see. Uh, I don't know when Chris Paul's coming back. He's dealing with a heel injury. And obviously the Suns were already playing without Cam Johnson. Who else? Cade Cunningham, shin injury. Desmond Bain, a toe injury. LaMelo Ball, he came back after missing the start of the season. Then he picked up a sprained ankle. Pascal Siakam's been out with an adductor injury. Half the Raptors are also out with a non-COVID illness. Scotty Barnes has an ankle and knee thing. Precious Achua got hurt. Um, Bradley Beal's out with a thigh injury. Uh, Mike Conley. Conley's out with a leg injury. Paolo Boncaro uh, has been out with an ankle injury. And like all the magic guards basically have been out with some ailment or other. Uh, Chris Middleton obviously has still not played. Am I forgetting anybody? Well, Robert Williams still hasn't played. Right. Dude, it's in. It's actually insane. I, I get what you're saying about how like this kind of happens every like. There's a stretch every year where it does seem like the injuries randomly pile up. But mm-hmm. to your point, I don't think I definitely don't remember a year where it's happened this early in the season. And even like you mentioned, you know, years when COVID has knocked a bunch of guys out. And okay, this year some of it is like non-COVID illnesses, but the majority of the guys we just mentioned, if not all of them, are out with actual injuries right now. They're not. It's not illnesses. It's not, and and most of those guys, other than Robert Williams and Chris Middleton, we're not talking about guys who just haven't played yet. Like we're talking about guys who started the season and within the first five weeks have suffered injuries that have required them to miss multiple games. And those are just the starrier names that we just ran through and took two minutes to run through just their mm-hmm. names. That doesn't include some like other rotation. Like I think Sadiq Bay now is out in Detroit. Like there's just like a bunch of guys out around the league, and it's. Uh, I mean, it's a bummer from, you know, viewer, like fan perspective, obviously a bummer for the players themselves and for the teams. And I think it also makes it tough to kind of take too much from some of these early season matchups and to take too much from like matchup data in general, when it's like half the games being played right now, it's almost like mulligans for something. It's like, well, they don't have anyone, right? Or like, it's so hard to make any kind of sweeping judgments and it's already hard to do that early in the season anyway, let alone when, you know, almost every game is featuring teams missing stars. The Nets were in Toronto uh, last night, Wednesday night. They played the depleted Sixers on Tuesday in Ben Simmons return game and somehow lost that game. Came to Toronto the next night and played the Raptors without Siakam, Van Vliet, Achua, Barnes, and I can't remember who else I'm missing. And I actually asked Jock Vaughn before the game about like, we obviously know about the advantages that come with playing a team, you know, lacking some of their top players, but like, what are some of the, I don't know, maybe like low key, not disadvantages, but just tough parts about prepping for a team that is missing so many guys or with some unknowns or, you know, showing up in an arena and not knowing what the team you're playing is going to have out there. And Jacques Vaughn talked about how just the way this early season has been around the league, not even just with the Nets last two matchups, how, they're at a point where like a lot of times, because also some of these injuries are so like last minute in terms of the injury reports, Shock Vaughn was saying the Nets have had instances this season, especially recently, where when they're doing their like pre-game um, scouting kind of run through like matchup related thing, they have literally empty slots in a, in a certain player's matchup because they literally don't know who is going to play for that team. And they're like, okay, you know, last night it's like, okay, well, we were pretty sure player X isn't going to play. But the guy who's backing him up or the guy who we think might take his minutes, he's also questionable. So, like, we don't know. Like, it, no excuses at all for the Nets losing that game and even being in a game at halftime last yeah, night. You like, know what? No I was going to say, I was going to say, practicing with an empty slot in the corner to prepare for the Sixers is basically a perfect simulation of the experience of playing against PJ Tucker. <laughs> Yeah. Although I will, I, that is a great uh, joke, but I was going to say he did like for he hit his first basket yeah. in five games last night. Yeah. Our guy Trill friend of the show tweeted, I think last night or two nights ago that Matisse Thibel scored more in a three minute stretch than PJ Tucker had in like the last four days combined or four games combined. But no, what I was saying with that, with that Nets thing, I don't think Jacques Vaughn meant literally an empty side in terms of like people on the court when they prep. I think he meant in the actual, like, scouting report or like in the slides they were showing players when it was like okay now it's this guy's match like they literally had like an empty slot imagine like when you're playing video games as a kid and a guy's face is like blank on the screen because he's like not recognizable um i prefer to the to think of them just defending like five on three (laughs) and that's basically what they were doing against philly and they still managed to lose that game 
Um, look, I would say I, I totally agree about it just being hard to take the temperature of a lot of these teams, just because, it, including you know the Pacers team that we're going to talk about. I feel like so many of their wins have come against depleted teams. So that that is making it tough right now. I guess I would just say the good news is that we haven't had any injuries yet that appear to be season enders. I'm I'm knocking on my wood desk yeah. right How now. How long is Cam Johnson out? I think Cam Johnson, they said that he, it was just going to be, like they weren't going to do the meniscus repair, right? They right. were going to do a partial removal, which means that it could he could be back in, you know, like a couple of months. Yeah. So yeah, knock on wood, hopefully that continues. And these are just, in a lot of cases, kind of scrapes and bruises that uh, won't knock guys out for the rest of the season. But I guess before we get into the meat of our central conversation today, do any of these, you know, not necessarily the injuries themselves, but like the team context surrounding them, do any of them strike you as particularly notable or particularly interesting in terms of their big picture, long-term effects on the league landscape. I mean, we talked a little bit about the Clippers. That feels yeah, like the obvious I'd, one. but I'd say if we're talking like big picture and how it'll affect the rest of the season, I would just still have to stick with the Clippers because of the magnitude of those two stars. And the fact that, like, if you're, if you're talking about teams that have been impacted so far, like, I think the Raptors are in there as a team that went healthy, looked pretty damn good to start the season, especially the way Pascal Siakam was playing and, you know, are now kind of treading water at 500 but haven't I think they've played what five games with both of Van Vliet and Siakam in the lineup like something small like that but neither one of those injuries is something that I don't think the Raptors are too concerned about or shouldn't have to be too concerned about big picture wise rest of the season whereas with the Clippers between you know Kawhi's injury history and the stuff he's trying to recover from and Paul George hasn't exactly had a you know um slate of pristine health behind them either I think that's the team where you look at those injuries and even if the specific injuries themselves don't seem like season impacting or season ending or anything like that I think because of the two stars in question we're talking about with the injuries they've got and their history those are the ones to me where it's like unfortunately and I have no ill will against those guys I just have so little faith in their ability to stay healthy together like for long enough stretches for that team to contend the way they should be able to contend. Yeah, I mean I'm really curious to see in Portland. Like I do, I want to yeah. get a bigger I want to get a bigger sample of them defending yeah with Dame in the lineup because I definitely feel like they can, you know, I I've said it before, I continue to believe I don't think they can do it to quite the level that they've done it so far. But I know that they can defend when he's not playing. And obviously there's, in, in conjunction with that, a downturn at the offensive end. So I'm really curious to see like when he's back and hopefully back for a sustained period of time and not being kind of in and out of the lineup the way he has been so far, can they strike the right balance of offense and defense? Because that's always been the question with them. You know, they've they've gone from the... Lillard McCollum backcourt to the Lillard Simons backcourt which is not an upgrade defensively and I, I'm curious to see the extent to which they can keep defending at a high level once he's back so that one is is one that I'm keeping my eye on and then I'm just like man like Milwaukee's offense has been so rough recently even yeah. for Giannis himself which to me just has a lot to do with how much he's being asked to do yeah without Middleton there I just I, I really want to see that team get whole and I think people sleep. It's crazy to say because we're talking about the lead ball handler for a team that won the championship two years ago and very well might have done so again if he hadn't gotten hurt last year. But somehow people still just sleep on the importance of Middleton to that team yeah. and how much him not being there, like the downstream effects of that, the way that it affects Giannis, the way that it affects Holiday, like everybody sort of has to take on a little bit more. And... I don't know where their offense is at now. I think it was 22nd last I checked. Their defense is so elite. Like their offense doesn't have to be, doesn't even have to be top 10 for them to be a contender, right? But I actually think, you know, with Middleton in the mix, him playing at his best, at least, it has a chance to creep up into that territory just by allowing Giannis to shift into more of an off-ball role, like be more of a dive man and pick and roll, you know, like take advantage of, 
the gravity of players around him, which he's just like not really getting the benefit of right now. So yeah, um, I don't know what, do you know what the timetable is on Middleton? Like, is he expected back? Uh, I think they soon? actually just assigned him to uh, their G League team. Oh, right, to, would, her, to the herd, right. Yeah, yeah so that. that seems to mean he's going to get some conditioning in, which is great mm-hmm. news for him and the Bucks. I agree with you on people still somehow sleeping on, like he remains one of the most underrated, consistent stars of his generation. Like I just like, He's in the lineup. You pretty much know what you're getting from him. He's done it for years now. He's an all-star. Like, he's been paid, and yet, you know, he's won a championship. He's been the lead kind of shot creator on a championship. Not the best player, obviously, and not the numbers-wise the best, the way Giannis would be. But in terms of, like, individual shot creation, the number one guy on a championship team, and yet people still sleep on his impact. Yeah. Real quick before we I would we say, get, sorry, oh. the, the, I just want to say the silver lining of, of, that, of him being out is Marjan Beauchamp has mm-hmm. gotten a chance to start and play big minutes for them and he's been super active defensively creative passer like pretty fearless as a driver really good in transition I think he fits what they're trying to do so well and I think this is where you kind of get the obviously you want Middleton back as soon as humanly possible but this is the kind of thing where down the road it might come to be viewed as like a blessing in disguise because you've got that guy, those reps, you helped build up his confidence and continuity with the rest of the roster. And so come playoff time, you actually have a lot more faith in your ability to play him and his ability to hold up in high leverage spots because of the experience he got early in the season. Yep. I was going to say uh, just a quick note before we kind of wrap this early season injuries portion of the episode up, but 18 different teams have had eight or more different players already sidelined so far this season. So like not including obviously DNP CDs or like any like whether it was illness, injury, whatever, guys actually sidelined for at least the game. 18 different so more than half the league has essentially had more than half their team miss at least a game due to injury so far this season. The Magic so far lead the league in terms of uh, man games lost due to injury by 33 games over anyone else. They've missed a hundred games. Um, lost 100 games due to uh, injuries or injury-related absence, illness, whatever. The next most... I think they've also just lost 100 games. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then next most would be the Grizzlies at 67. So the Magic, way more banged up than anyone else. And then uh, last note is just, if anyone ever uh, follows the website, Spotrack, I guess is how you pronounce it. Spotrack, I don't know. But anyway, they do a lot of like contracts and salary cap-related stuff for various sports. Their NBA page... Uh, I assume they have it for each league. They have a kind of fun way of sorting the uh, injury absences and stuff where they actually have a way you can sort it by, depending on like the contracts every player is on, they divide it by games played. And they and they find a way to like teams that have essentially missed the most value in terms of how much they're spending on players that are out, right? So I know that doesn't tell the whole story because there are other ways to measure it in terms of how people players actually perform on the court. But I do think looking at it from like what they're spending on guys that haven't played yet is also interesting too. And so when you look at it that way, the most affected teams in terms of, you know, like kind of money spent on games missed Milwaukee, then Orlando, then Memphis, then the Clippers, then the Raptors. Now, the interesting thing is that four of those five teams are at least 500, the Magic or not. But those other four teams have somewhat survived these early season injuries. And I do think that's interesting because if the Bucks, Grizzlies, Clippers, and Raptors do get healthy, I think you know each one of them can obviously factor in as the season plays out. But then that's another thing where you're like, oh, wow, these injured teams have kind of treaded water, but they're also just beating other injured teams. Yeah, so what no, does fair it really enough. Mean? Fair enough. Um, okay, let's le- leave that there. Uh, Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk about those Indiana Pacers. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, you are writing about the Pacers right now. I am very jealous of that because, like I said off the top, 
this has been one of the most fun teams in the league so far and a team that was once close to my heart that I renounced and I just can't, I can't go back. I can't waffle. The Kings are my team now. And I'm, you know, especially when those two teams are now going to be basically linked forever by the Halliburton Sabonis trade, which to me is looking very much like a win-win. Listen, listen. Okay. Win-win in the short term. Win-win in the short term. Here's what I said at the time. And I will say it again. And at the time I, I, you know, Sabonis was a better player than Halliburton. I don't know that you can say that's true anymore. But at the time, what I said is like, yeah, in a vacuum, short term, it's totally fine. But when you're trading a guy who is a second year player on a rookie scale contract, it's just you're not operating in a vacuum. Like the short term is not really what should matter. But I think as much as Halliburton is looking like a star in his third season in the league, I do think... Sabonis fits in Sacramento a lot better than Halliburton did and is unlocking things for that team that wouldn't have been unlocked otherwise. And if they can keep him, uh, you know, beyond his current contract, then I think it could wind up being a win-win. But I think it's hard to argue that it hasn't been a complete home run from Indiana's side of things. Yeah. So that's worked out great for them. Uh, They're 10 and seven right now with I think the eighth best offense in the yeah. league top 10 uh, point differential um you know the defense have been I think they're 19th in defense yeah below average um they're playing ultra fast bombing a ton of threes playing a lot of lineups with four smalls out there along with one big man uh usually asking Miles Turner to clean up a lot of messes and like those lineups are doing basically what you'd expect them to, right? Which yep. is cooking on offense and, like I said, playing with a lot of pace and shooting a lot of threes. And then also allowing a ton of shots at the rim, a bunch of offensive rebounds, and they're fouling like crazy. So there are always trade-offs with playing that style. But, again, that makes them a really fun watch. And for a team that is young and wasn't really expected to do anything this season, I think it's interesting to look at that and wonder. And this is what's most interesting to me because at the end of the day, you know, this team is not going to do anything meaningful this season, apart from Mm -hmm. just play fun basketball, which I don't want to say that's not meaningful, but I mean, they're not going to win a playoff series if if they get to the playoffs at all, which I don't think they're going to. So this season to me is much more about figuring out, you know, what all this portends or how it will shape the team's vision moving forward. So I'll kick it over to you then, because I know you are writing about them. What do you think in terms of like, what does this, what does this season mean? The way that they've played the style that they've played, what does that mean for how this team can or will take shape in the next few years? I think the biggest takeaway early in the season, and it's something that, I mean, you remember conversations we had about Halliburton. I've always been a big Halliburton fan. I thought, listen, I'm not going to say I saw this from him coming in year three, but I was always high on him. I loved the trade from Indiana's perspective. And I think what this early season has probably showed them, and even if they might not want to admit they're buying this much into it, you know, a month into the season, but I think the biggest takeaway for them should be that like they've got a foundational star now now that doesn't mean uh, when i say foundational star that doesn't necessarily have to mean oh tyrese halliburton's going to be like the best player on a championship contender in two years like that's not necessarily what i mean but they very clearly have a foundational star who by the way is still on his rookie scale contract that they should be very confident in is going to be a pillar not necessarily the pillar possibly the pillar but one of the pillars of the next great pacers team that they can keep and mold teams around and mold offenses around because he's that just dynamic of a a point guard and lead offensive player. And I think that is big because look, as much as you know, you want to talk about tanking for a woman Yama or a Scoot Henderson or like whatever, tanking in any year and getting, you know, the guy at the top of the draft. I try to remind people of this every year, but like the number of true franchise changers in a draft, like the, the guys who are actually going to change your franchise like that are very few and far between. And there are a lot of years where there's not even one of those guys. There are all stars in every draft. You know, there are guys that end up becoming all NBA, but true franchise changers 
aren't guaranteed in any draft. And even in one where there could be a couple of them, you still need the luck of the lottery, even if you're the worst team in the league. And so when a team that is very much now invested in a rebuild, like a true rebuild for the first time in a long time, discovers that they've got like one of those foundational stars, that is a win. I don't care if they meant to tank and end up with the ninth pick. To me, it doesn't matter. If within that season, they've established that they've got one of those foundational stars, that's a win and they're already ahead. And I think that's what's so promising about this season for the Pacers is that to me, Tyrese Halliburton looks like one of those guys. You know, Benedict Matherin, we've talked about in a make or miss segment a couple weeks ago. And I, I talked about how like he's in contention to pull a Ben Gordon, which is win sixth man of the year in his rookie year. Whether he does that or not, it's been one of the more impressive scoring seasons from a rookie that I can remember, especially when coming off the bench. Like Matherin and Halliburton being on their rookie scale contracts gives them something to start building with. And even Miles Turner having literally a career year, like Miles Turner, it he's been around forever and it feels like he's been around forever and it feels like he's been in trade talks forever, but he's still only 26. And sure, like, look, if you get blown away by some offer for Miles Turner, you do have to think about that just because of where the Pacers are in their timeline. But if... Miles Turner can give you what he's giving you or even like come close to that for the next few years on his next contract. Halliburton's 22, Matherin's 20. Like he's only 26. You can't tell me that you can't keep him and have him be part of the next good Pacers team either because he very much can. And now if you're talking about having Halliburton, Turner, and Matherin under long-term team control, I think now you're cooking. And I think that's something the Pacers should be excited about. And so like if it's, if the best offer you're going to get is, I don't know, like what, a first rounder is the star of the of the trade package coming in from Miles Turner, I'm not even sure that's worth it at this point. Because if he, if he can be this kind of player, you know, for and you get him locked in through his late 20s, basically, and partner him with the player Halliburton's becoming and becoming Mather, like, to me, that almost becomes a no-brainer. And so... Yeah, I mean, it's... I, it's totally dependent on how close they are in terms of what a a new contract would look like. Exactly. If they're you know, if they're like, if the way they value him is like way off, like if they just don't for whatever reason, if they don't think he can carry this over, if they're like whatever, that obviously will be a, a very big factor as well. But all in all, I just think. And again, it's not even necessarily about the, the performance on the court because you can go through it. Like they've actually had one of the easiest schedules so far. You can go through their wins and they don't, other than, you know, they had a pretty impressive win against the Pelicans and one against the Nets. If you would consider a win against the Nets even impressive anymore. But other than that, any one of their wins that you might look at and say, oh, that looks like a good one. It was actually against a depleted version of the team that you thought it was a good win against. So their win profile isn't that great. You know, there's very easy schedule. And then you start, honestly, you start going through and it's like, Okay, I praise Matherin. I praise Turner having a career year. Uh, Halliburton looking like a, a complete, almost superstar. And then Buddy Heald shooting the lights out. After that, this team is not good. Like, you can make the argument Isaiah Jackson's their fifth best player. And, like, no disrespect to Isaiah Jackson. Like, that's not great. Like, my point is that they're still As not disrespect good. to Andrew Nemhard, if anything. Uh, listen, Nemhard's been good. Like, McConnell's had, like, two good games. But they're, they're, my point is that, like... They're 10 and 7. They're surprising from a win-loss perspective. I still don't think they're necessarily a good team this season. I think if you look at their schedule, I'd still probably peg them in like the mid, maybe high 30s. I think they'll finish with a losing record, maybe get in the play-in, probably not make the playoffs. But again, it's about how you get there and where you are in your timeline. And like there is a very big difference between the Pacers, who I'm now projecting as like a 36-ish win team, with where they are in their timeline you know, the assets still available to them and all this, there's a very big difference between that and say ending up with high 30 wins when you're Chicago, like a division rival for them, who's more so like mortgaged a lot of the future to get to this point, who this is like, this is supposed to be the crescendo for them, you know, like, and, and that so much of how you view this thing has to be based on not just expectations internally, but where they are on their timeline, right? And for the Pacers, they should be completely content, even if it means the difference between the third pick and the ninth pick this season. I think they should be completely content with where this season is going for them and what it means for their future. And even like, look, I, I said, they're probably still not a good team. They'll end up with like 36 wins, maybe lose a playing game. Guess what? Their preseason over-under was like 24 and a half. 
So even though I still don't think they're good, I still think they're going to vastly overachieve this season and set themselves up well for the future. That's about all I have to say about this team. Um, but to your point too, also just it's like fun watch. Mm-hmm. Ty- I love watching Tyrese Halliburton and the way this team plays with him, kind of running things and that all in all, just a really fun watch. Yeah, and the thing with Halliburton, he, he still to me doesn't have the kind of downhill burst that maybe you would want to see from a lead guard. And that's what made me kind of wonder whether he had it in him to be like, a high-end lead guard. But I think what we're really seeing this season, if we hadn't seen it already, is this dude is a special, special shooter and a pretty special passer as well. And like, you put the right pieces around a guy like that, and that's kind of all you need. And I think this is more or less the right offensive environment for a player like Halliburton, where like the whole team just gets up the floor super fast, and that... I mean, he's a big part of that because he's pushing off a misses. He's pushing off a makes. And then in the half court, it's like he's surrounded by shooters. And what you want for a player who is like a dangerous pull-up threat, but not necessarily a downhill threat himself, is you want to have a really dynamic roller, like a pick-and-roll partner who can who can pop, but who can also put pressure on the rim as a roll man. And that's where I feel like we've seen the biggest step forward from Turner like it's been so huge that two-man game Halliburton and Turner is just like carving defenses up and I do think part of that is you know he is a lot of the time the lone big man on the floor whereas when he was playing with Sabonis a lot of time he had to spot up or he had to pop out of like double ball screen actions because Sabonis was the guy rolling but even in the past like I remember the bubble when Sabonis was injured and it was like, oh man, so like Miles Turner playing the five. Let's see how this opens the game up for him. And he was kind of just doing the same thing. He was popping after most of his ball screens. And he's really changed that. And I think, first of all, like there's an element of when he pops, he is also now able to drive closeouts and like attack the basket in a way that I haven't seen from him before. Um, he did that a couple times last night where, you know, one he he had like a finger roll that he put yeah, high no. off of glass. He had an outrageous dunk over Jaden McDaniels. So I've liked that aggressiveness from him and him like just flashing a little bit more ball skill, at least as like a closeout attacker, if not necessarily an on-the-move playmaker or, or anything like that. But that's been so important. And that like that is what Halliburton needs, I think, in a pick and roll partner. And, you know, the other thing with Turner, and this is still very much a work in progress, but it, like like him attacking switches in the post has always been a huge weakness. Yeah. And this is something that I've talked about with Towns before too, where Biggs, whose instinct is to pop out of the pick and roll, it becomes really difficult for them to exploit those mismatches on switches because then you're catching the ball like, 20 or more feet away from the basket. And so if you want to attack that mismatch, either you got to like try and jostle for position and get a repost and then you're really eating valuable clock or you got to try and back them down from really far away and that's going to be very difficult to do or you just got to try and take them off of the dribble which you're a big guy trying to dribble the ball with a smaller defender on you that's usually not going to go particularly well. So I think a, a big difference in that regard for Turner is he is actually now rolling into those switches a lot more and that's allowing him to get deeper position on those those mismatches and actually do some damage in the post but like i said that's still very much a work in progress and that actually speaks to why i think the four small lineups rather than the you know the lineups with him and jalen smith on the floor together have been way more effective for indiana and i'm you know this right i'm not one of these guys who thinks going small is the answer to everything I just think for this team, like I'm pretty low on Jalen Smith in general. Yeah. Uh, I, I think his defense is pretty bad. His ball screen coverage is really bad in particular. And what teams I feel like have started to do is they will just put their center on Jalen Smith and have like a power forward guard Turner. And then they're like a lot more comfortable. Like they're, they're not going to play drop coverage in those pick and rolls, right? They're going to yeah. switch them. And that's where he he has to be able to do some damage on the backside. So 
um, he, he's been really good, and we haven't even talked about his defense yet, which we can get into. But right, <clears throat> it's been it's been immense. Um, and like you talk about the Pacers being 18th, 19th, and I said, yeah, they're below average defensively. Well, if it wasn't for Miles Turner, they would easily be one of the two or three worst defenses in the league. Like he is the only reason they are even close to yeah below average. But the one thing b- before we get into it too, like because it's something I noted in in what I'm writing about with them too. Like he is a more complete offensive player. Yeah, like the. The uh, abusing switches is definitely something that he will have to get better at. But even if you just look at last year to this year, he does look like a at least slightly more complete offensive player. Like the his attacking closeout game is better. He, there is a little bit more of a varied approach there. And again, that's just an example where it's like sometimes maybe if you like you you feel like a guy's been around forever or he's always on the trade block and you just you go into a season saying okay well like this guy is not part of this team's plans and then therefore they got to trade him and like whatever he's an expiring contract and you forget sometimes that well that player's only 26 years old and is still a pretty good player and can still get better like, well, why can't they be a part of this team's future, right? Like, Miles Turner is not necessarily a finished product, and he's showing that this year. And I think that's a fun development for them as well. But yes, defensively, just another ball game. Like, hit. There are there are few players in the league that have had the defensive impact that Miles Turner has had this season. Yeah. So um, to put some numbers on the offensive development before we get into the defensive stuff, sixty eight point seven percent true shooting where his previous career high was last year, actually, at 61.5%. His three-point attempt rate is actually down to 32%, which is his lowest in four years. So that speaks to him doing a lot more damage closer to the basket. And then maybe the biggest thing is that his free throw rate is, like, by far the highest of his career. Uh, It's at 9.4 per 100 possessions, which his previous career high was 6 per 100. So just all in all, playing a lot more like an actual big man rather than just, you know, kind of like an oversized three and D guy (laughs) essentially. And then defensively. So you mentioned, you know, without him, this would be one of the two or three worst defenses in the league. And I mentioned that, you know, them playing small and not really having any particularly good individual defenders on the perimeter. Like I can't even think off the top of my head who the team's best perimeter defender is. Whoever it is, they're not very good. (laughs) <laughs> at, at doing it. I'm serious. Like, No, I know. So so they're, again, allowing a ton of shots at the rim. They have a lot of coverage breakdowns and just blow-bys on the perimeter. And you look at the numbers, they are allowing the third highest opponent rim frequency in the league, but the lowest opponent rim field goal percentage in the league. And that's basically all Turner. Like, if you look at his numbers specifically, opponents are shooting 51% at the rim against him. And that is with him defending 9.2 field goal attempts at the rim per game. Not only does that lead the league, but it's threatening his own record in the NBA.com database, which uh, encompasses the last 10 seasons. He actually set that record two years ago with 9.5. So I, I'm trying to think, like, would you say that he's just been straight up the best rim protector in basketball so far this season? Like, It's him or Brooke Lopez. Right? I was going to say, uh, the only one that could maybe take that crown from him right now is Brooke Lopez. But pretty good yeah, company I mean, to be in. Yeah. And like, I think both of those guys actually have been better rim protectors than Gobert this season, which not that Gobert has been bad by any yeah. means, but those two guys have just been really good. And then it, just a quick point on Matherin, man, what a find. Like, oh my Dude. God. He, they, first of all, like they do such a good job of getting him the ball on the move where he's just like slingshotting around a down screen on cuts like they're it's clearly a priority for them to get him the ball moving toward the basket and that's why i mean his free throw rate for a rookie wing is in the stratosphere and obviously you shoot the ball really well too you know i talked about um when when you asked me uh about his six man of the year candidacy i think on our last episode it was like i think that's why he can sustain the scoring because he lives at the rim and he lives at the free throw line it's not maybe the shooting will come down and it's already starting to come down a bit, but he's an exceptionally explosive driver, a really crafty finisher. And in terms of what he's able to do as a movement shooter, like they, they had this baseline out of bounds play last night where 
the whole play was just they had four guys standing on like the ball side of the court essentially and it was just Matherin in like the opposite corner and the whole play was just him sprinting right through the paint to like the ball side corner and taking the inbounds pass and like in one motion he catches it turns and squares up sets his feet and hits a three for an and one like that was the whole play I can't remember a rookie getting to the line like that, like drawing fouls. Yeah. Well, Boncaro, right? Who's doing it on an even higher right. level. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the, I mean, if you're going to compare him to the, like arguably a guy who might be the greatest player ever, then that that's pretty impressive company. But no, in all seriousness, when you talk about uh, Matherin and his just ability to live at the rim, that, downhill ability of his being able to drive through a defense get to the free throw line you know um like the lead ball handler that he compliments really well i do it's tyrese halliburton like this is a really perfect pairing going forward man and they're 22 and 20 and again it's just part of why like it's not about buying too much into the record like what they could be this year it's about being very excited about the future they are starting to find and how, you know, last year they didn't actually mean to tank and they ended up all like basically tanking and they didn't, you know, they didn't end up with like a top two or three pick. They Matherin was what? Sixth, eighth. I don't remember now. Um, six, six. Right. So it's yeah. like last year they almost inadvertently tanked, didn't get the pick they would have liked and then still ended up with a, a stud out of it. And then this year, when they probably meant to tank, they're not going to be able to because that guy and a, and a couple others are helping them avoid the tank, but their future is still set up well. So it's it's all just very ironic that this is how it turned out for a franchise that historically has never wanted to tank. It's like the pacer way, and inadvertently, they've continued along the pacer way, and looks like they will build the next competitive pacers team, having done it again. I mentioned, I think, on the pod last year around uh, the draft lottery, when the pacers picked in the top six last year, it was the first time since I think like 80, I, I got to go back now and see what the number, it was, it was like sometime over, in the 80s. Yeah. Right. It was like over 30, 35 years since they had even picked in the top six and they've had a lot of competitive teams in that time. Like they've continued to be able to do this, like not completely bottom out and build another competitive team. And sure you can gripe about the fact, well, they've never actually built like, you know, a team that fought, like gets over the hump. Okay. Well, sometimes the breaks don't go your way. Like they've had some damn good teams that were contenders in that time. Um, Last note from from me, and it's more of just like a trivia thing, but also to kind of highlight how insanely good of an offensive player Tyrese Halliburton has been so far this season. So 19 plus points, 10 plus assists, 60% true shooting or better, all those three things, while being a qualified three-point shooter. Halliburton's doing that this year. Can you think of the other two guys in the three-point era that have done that? So basically the last like 44 years. Can you, can you, uh, sorry, read me the, the qualifiers again? Averaging uh, 19 and 10, so 19 points and 10 plus assists, mm-hmm. 60 plus percent true shooting while being a qualified three point shooter. And only two other guys have done that over a whole season in the three point era over the last 44 years. Halliburton is on pace to become the third. I'm going to say Steve Nash has got to be one of them. He is not. He's not, eh? He's not. He, he never got the points, I guess. That's what it was. He never partnered the points of that in one of those seasons. Um, I'm trying to think because like, you really don't get a lot of guys. I mean, Chris Paul. Nope. No, like you don't get a lot of guys who even average, you know, 19 and 10 or 20 and 10, right? Exactly. Like that's- and then you have to inc- include like them doing that while being good three point shooters and overall efficient scores, like blending volume and high assists. And by the way, uh, Halliburton also leads the league in assist percentage. When he's on the court, more than half of the Pacers' field goals are assisted by him. Yeah, no, I mean he's he's very much the the engine of that team and he doesn't do it in a way that is he's like a lead guard who's also kind of a connective playmaker. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Um anyway, I've yeah, I'm just running out the clock here cuz I can't think of who these guys are and it's going to drive me nuts when I hear them cuz I'll I'll just think about how I miss I think them, one but. of them you'll think it'll drive you nuts. The other one I think might surprise you. James Harden. Right. Okay. Of course. And Magic Johnson. I was going to say Magic, but then it's like, okay, what qualifies as a a, a qualified three-point shooter in Magic Johnson's age, you know? Because I feel like he never... So I, I also thought that, but then... Oh, no, I got to find it. <laughs> yeah, in uh, 89, 90, and 90, 91, 
he was a qualified three-point shooter. In 89-90, he actually made over a three per game, took over three attempts per game, and shot 38% from deep and played 79 games. So yeah, he qualified that year. Yeah, so I guess Halliburton's good. Uh, we can, <laughs> we've established that. Uh, I do think, look, this is just going to be one of the more fascinating teams to track in the lead up to the trade deadline because between Turner and Heald, like those are two guys who they fit this team really well. Yeah. Right. But the question of whether they are part of the long-term vision, whether the Pacers would or should consider trade proposals for those guys that maybe shift the team's window a, a little bit more toward the long term not that i mean again you mentioned turner's what 26 26 yeah i think yield is, is more the one that you know you, if you can extract a first round pick somewhere like, mm-hmm. i think you do that turner i think it has to be much more of a no-brainer haul to move him yeah so with turner it's like I, they just don't really have a way to replace him right like barring no an epic tumble to the bottom of the standings or I guess an epic rise to the top of the lottery. Like it would be really hard to replace what he does, especially if he just is this guy on offense now. So that's going to be really interesting to see. And is healed and expiring or he's got another year left. After he's got time? another year left. Although I'm not sure it's uh, hold on a sec. Cause I don't know. In that case, I don't know. I'm, I'd almost think it makes more sense for them to hang on to him just because I think, you know, the the sort of league-wide consensus on Heald is tough to gauge, and I don't know whether yeah. another year at, like, 20-plus million dollars, like, is that a good thing? Is that something the teams exactly, are going to pay yeah. more for? Or would they actually give up more next season when he's an expiring? Buddy Heald so, has uh, one year left after this. He's, next season, he's set to make about $19.3 in what will gotcha. then be his expiring year. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, okay, let, let's leave that there, yeah? We, yeah? we We pacer it out? I think so. All right, let's do a quick make or miss and then get out of here. Sounds good to me. All right, I'm going to start us off here. The Southeast Division, Cash. I was watching a little bit of Heat Wizards last night. That was a game with some stakes, right? The Wizards, I think, coming into that game were tied for the Southeast Division lead with the Hawks. For for the second season in a row, the Wizards have gotten off to the league's most fraudulent start. And it was, you know, it was decently entertaining. Wizards are playing some pretty solid ball. The Heat are banged up, but... They always give it 110%, you know, no, no matter who's on the floor for them. So it was all right. But I'm just thinking like, man, this is some underwhelming stuff, <laughs> you know? And like, especially with the Hawks and how up and down they've been and how confusing they've been. And that's something we've obviously talked about on this show a couple of times. So I'm just looking across the league and I'm thinking, is this the worst division in basketball right now? What do you think? Is that a make or a miss? That is a... Prime Shaq era backboard breaking dunk of a make. Because not only is it the worst division in NBA ball, it is the worst division by a country mile. The Hornets, without LaMelo especially, are terrible. The Magic, for as you know frisky as I think they can be going forward, and as much as I love Paolo Banquero, are at the moment terrible. The Heat, part of it is that they're banged up, but they're also a little over the hill and are not you know, even what the most optimistic Heat observer might think they are. The Wizards, as I've already mentioned, to me, are off to the league's most fraudulent start and will slowly fade down the East standings again and will not be... I don't think they'll even get in the play-in. That leaves just the Hawks, and of the teams that... I don't think they're bad. I think they're good, but out of the East's good teams, they're the least trustworthy to me. So you go through it, and like I don't think there's a true blue great team in this division not a single one and there's a lot of bad in this division so yeah it's a great call that's a make yeah i mean what's where, where are we at with the heat right now obviously they've been playing without butler so again it's it's hard to it, gauge and, and bam missed some time too he's been back and actually playing quite well i think Lowry the heat, had a tough start to the season but been playing well lately yeah, you know um, how larry leads the league in minutes right now yeah that's wild man and that that obviously speaks to the injuries that have piled up and just their lack of depth like that's kind of yeah, and to me, like there, it's just concerning for a lot of reasons. I think 
I mean, I, I think we were both in agreement. We already had the heat potentially falling into the play and coming into the season before any of these injuries yep. started piling up. I think, yeah, I think that's probably where they end up. And I just think that's not, well, obviously it's not a good place to be, but that's especially not a good place to be for a very old team that does not need any extra road bumps on their way to trying to contend. So yeah, they're in trouble. Um, all right. Make or miss for you. Stick with the uh, American Thanksgiving theme here for our American listeners. Given the ages and the stages of their career that some of the starriest names in the league, starriest American names in the league, whether you're talking LeBron, Kevin Durant, etc., Chris Paul, whoever you're thinking of, those legends are at a certain stage of their career now. And given the defensive difference between the player I'm about to mention and Steph Curry, who otherwise I think would be you know, known as the best American player right now, make or miss Jason Tatum is now the best American basketball player on the planet. Uh, it's a miss, but only because Steph Curry exists. Yeah. Like, I'm I, fine with that. I think I would feel pretty comfortable putting him, not by a significant margin, but I, I would still feel comfortable putting him ahead of Durant at this point. Just because Tatum? of the... Yeah, because of the defense. Yeah, like I agree. I'd go Curry think, one, Tatum two, but I think Tatum's like now entered that conversation. Yeah. But like, man, Steph is just still so ridiculous. And the thing that I ultimately have worried would catch up to him and just make him less effective as he got older was, you know, it's not just about like having the legs and the lift on the jump shot. Like that's doing what he does is obviously very hard to do, like taxing on his body, but it's really about how relentlessly he continues to move off of the ball in every single possession. Like that is what makes him so good. And he's still doing it. Like he still has what appears to me to be the best endurance in the league, despite being, you know, what is he now? 34? Yeah. The, the fact that he can keep doing that. And I know like the, he, he doesn't play as many minutes, I guess, as some of the other stars in the league, but he's just indefatigable, man. Like, he just doesn't seem to get tired ever. And he continues to run defenders in complete circles with his completely unpredictable off ball movement patterns. And as long as he can keep doing that and shooting the way that he's shooting, I honestly think his dribble drive game right now looks as good as it ever has. And that's something that carried over from the playoffs last year. I mean, I, I think in spite of the defensive gulf between those two players, as you laid out, the, the way that Steph warps the court with his offensive brilliance still puts him a notch ahead. Yeah, I agree. But I think Tatum's made a, a strong push and a strong case. I just think as long as Steph's around and still doing what he's doing, I I don't know. It's going to be hard to take that mantle from him. Yeah, it's also going to be hard for any other word we speak today to take the mantle of uh, Joe Wolfon's word of the week from indefatigable. <laughs> <laughs> still still waiting on that dictionary sponsor for the uh, podcast, by the way. All right. Okay, Cash. My next one for you. The Minnesota Timberwolves have won five straight to improve to 10 and 8. Now, let's lay out some caveats. The teams they beat, the Cavs with no Donovan Mitchell, the Magic, who wouldn't have been an impressive win anyway, but they did it with no Paolo or Wendell Carter. They beat the Sixers with no Maxi or Harden. They beat the Heat with no Butler or Tyler Hero. And then last night, they beat the Pacers, a pretty healthy Pacers team, in actually quite impressive fashion, I thought. Uh, that, to me, was easily the best, most complete game that I've seen that team play this season. So I'm curious to know what you think. So make or miss, Cash. Minnesota has actually turned the corner and will perform like a top six Western Conference team from here on out. Okay, off the top of my head, I'm going to call it a make. Because my definition of turning the corner would just be that, that they could perform like a top six West team and be a playoff proper team the rest of the way. But again, it also, it depends on your expectations. Like, I know one of your bold predictions was that they'd finish top the West. Even if, even if you weren't that high on them, if maybe you just thought they'd be a lot better than your standard top six team, I wouldn't call this a make yet. I'm not sure they turned that corner yet. I'm not sure I've seen enough from them to be like, okay, they're a, like they're legit. They're the contenders they wanted to be when they made the Gobert trade, et cetera, et cetera. Like I don't think they're there yet. But turn the corner in terms of looking like a Western Conference playoffs proper team. I'll give that to you. That's a make. I'll just say, I think that 
they're starting to figure out how to play together. Yeah. Like Edwards only had two assists last night, but both of them went to Rudy Gobert and -hmm. both of them were really slick passes. Uh, Russell finally seems to kind of like have the offense on a string. His playmaking, I thought was dynamite last game. And, uh, you know, Townsend Gobert, like their offensive connection has actually been there pretty much from the start but I think they're starting to figure things out defensively as well. And then I just, I could not be more in love with Jaden McDaniels as a player. I know. Man. Like, I, I've talked before about just how great I think his secondary rim protection is, but he's also one of the best point of attack defenders in the league. And he, like what he did against Tyrese Halliburton last night was unbelievable. Yeah. One so, of Halliburton's least efficient games of the season, not coincidentally. No, very much so. And I wrote about the Kings today and, and this is like something that got me thinking. And I mentioned when we talked about the Kings on our last episode, how their lack of defensive versatility and lack of secondary room protection at the forward spots is a big part of the problem. And like, if they had Jaden McDaniel starting at the four instead of Harrison Barnes, I feel like they would be not like an inner circle contender, but like a fringe contender in the West. I feel like his impact is that, monumental at the defensive end so I'm, I'm, he's very much the glue guy for them totally totally um hit me with your last one all right this one i will admit is probably less of a make than it would have been had i asked you this two weeks ago when he was rolling at his best when the team was rolling at their best but i still think it is a relevant question to ponder make or miss Giannis and Tedekumpo will become the second player ever and the first since Hakeem Olajuwon 29 years ago to win all of MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, and Finals MVP in the same season this year? Uh, miss miss for me. Uh, I don't think... He's been really good defensively, but uh, I think he has been the second best defender on his own team. And I think even MVP could be tough. Even if this isn't fair to him, like his efficiency has kind of been in the toilet for the last couple of weeks. Yep. And like, you know, we talked about Middleton off the jump and how that's affecting him and the offensive load he's having to carry. I think the last time I checked, he had the highest usage rate in the league. I don't know if that's still the case, but like for him to have a higher usage rate than Luka Doncic. Yeah, it's pretty it nuts. Is insane. So obviously that's going to affect his efficiency and just sort of make things more difficult on him in general, including at the defensive end. So I don't necessarily think it's fair, but I do think ultimately when we look at, you know, the statistical case, he's maybe going to suffer for that and have a hard time winning MVP over somebody like Steph, you know, or somebody like uh, Tatum or, you know, whoever else is in that mix right now. But I haven't changed my mind about him being, you know, the best player in basketball. Right. But I think to to actually pull all that off is going to be a huge challenge. I'd agree with that. And I actually think that of the three, you I would argue that finals MVP is actually his most likely of the three <laughs> this season. I and mean, that's not saying it's like like percentages wise. Right. It's not like because again, even even in a standard season, like the favorite has, you know, maybe like a, a 30 10, to 40 percent. Like that, and that's oh, like 30? an oh the most overwhelming favorite. That's like yeah, Prime yeah, yeah. Warriors area. This year the favorite is probably like a 15 to 20% chance of winning the title. So even if you consider them the favorite, like them actually winning and him being there and winning finals and beat would still not be a likely proposition. And yet I'm still saying, I actually think of those three, it might be his likeliest this season. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's an interesting case. Uh, I, because it's contingent on them winning the title, I would still say if I had to pick, then MVP is probably the most likely one. Although, Maybe it's defensive player of the year just because I feel like the Bucks probably will end up with the number one defense in basketball and a lot but of to voters your point, might, might attribute oh, that to him. Yeah. Well, if it went by Brooke. merit then and the and you wanted to give it to a buck, it would be Brooke Lopez in my opinion. But Yeah, but I think that there's still this perception that what Brooke does is easier and that he's like a little bit more one-dimensional where yeah. you know he's he's in his drop, his job is a little bit more simplified than what Giannis does, and all he has to do is protect the rim. I obviously think it's a lot more nuanced and complex than that, and I I hope that Brooke ultimately just wins it because I think so far this season he's been the most deserving guy to me. But uh, I I wouldn't be shocked if if Giannis won it over him if the Bucks do wind up with the best defense yeah. at the end of the year. 
So that does it for Make or Miss. That does it for this episode. I will kick it over to Cash for a Thanksgiving shout out uh, before we get on out of here and enjoy. Well, we're not going to enjoy the holidays because there's no holiday here in Canada, but we'll enjoy a a holiday from NBA games tonight. Yeah. Very, very, very simple fan shout out this week. It's going to go out to Cam in Toronto. He knows who he is. uh, Big supporter of our show. Keep it simple. Cam in Toronto. Uh, For all of our listeners out there, whether this is your first time listening or your 269th time listening, we want to hear from you. So hit us up on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email joe.wolfond at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com or find me on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash and let us know where you listen from, maybe what your favorite team is, what you like about the show, what you don't, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Over to you, Wolfond. Thank you, Cam. Thank you to all our listeners. In the spirit of Thanksgiving, a huge thank you to all of our listeners for riding with us for however long you have ridden with us. It's just, uh, it's a joy to keep churning out these episodes, promising 45 minutes and then going over an hour. We just love to do it and we're so appreciative of everyone who has tuned in at any point in time for any amount of time. So thank you all. We will be back next week with a fresh batch of takes and a new episode of Pound the Rock. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. We'll talk to you all soon. (laughs) 